Live from New York, I'm Julia Chastely. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Spike surge, dire warnings for the United States as COVID cases spread. DAX disaster, Germany's Wirecard files for insolvency as the fraud scandal deepens. And Singapore's strategy, the nation's trade minister, joins us live on First Move. It's Thursday. Let's make that move. Welcome to First Move. It's good to be with you as always. And it's a day where the handling of COVID-19 and the managing of the process of reopening are truly colliding. The stark differences around the world are being fully relieved, revealed. Take a look at this. In the United States, some states saw their largest one-day jumps on record yesterday. In Latin America, meanwhile, cases have tripled in just one month. And in China, Beijing says the recent outbreak is under control. They actually found just 250 cases after testing more than 2 million people over the past two weeks. I'll let that hang for a second. Health concerns weighing on stocks yesterday. We lost 2%, in fact, across the board. And as you can see, we're lower pre-market once again today. It's the same story around the world. Europe searching for direction. We've got UK stocks underperforming in Asia, China and Hong Kong. Markets were closed for a holiday, but Australian and South Korean stocks tumbled more than 2%. We've priced a lot of good news in, as we keep saying, on this show, in huge part too, thanks to global stimulus efforts, investors need to accept, I think, that therefore we're going to be vulnerable to anything that disappoints. And in that vein, we now know more than 47 million U.S. workers have filed for first-time benefits since the lockdowns began. A further one and a half million people in the past week alone. More importantly, perhaps almost 20 million people continue to receive benefits each week, though that number did come down slightly uh, in the past uh, two weeks or so. Call it reopening optimism, clashing once again with reopening reality. And that's where we begin our drivers. COVID-19 infections surging in the United States, three biggest states by population. So we're talking Florida, Texas and California, all set records in the last 24 hours for the number of new cases reported in a day. This comes as research suggests that if 95% of Americans wore masks, 33,000 lives could be saved between now and October. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. The problem is, Elizabeth, those mask-wearing techniques are not being mandated and the number of cases are simply going in the wrong direction, as are hospitalizations. Let's be clear. That's right, Julia. And the problem really here is human psychology. Masks, like so many other things in the United States, have become politicized. And so there's a group of people who feels that wearing a mask is... Uh, sort of being a sissy, if you will. It, it sets a political statement to wear a mask. It means that you're against Donald Trump. It means that you are everything they don't want to be, and so they don't wear masks. That's really unfortunate. There is no downside to wearing a mask. In fact, when you don't wear a mask, what you're saying to the people around you is, I don't care if you die. I could have COVID, because any of us could have COVID. I could have COVID, And I could give it to you, but I don't care. I am not wearing a mask. It's a sad statement, but that's how politicized things have become here in the U.S., Julia. 
Yeah, it is a political statement, and, and that's part of the problem. It's also, to your point as well, there are so many cases here where people are walking around and we don't know they've got symptoms. So they can be infecting people and they don't feel ill at all, which is also part of what we're seeing in terms of the spread of this virus and have seen this all the way along. Who's getting sick, though? It's younger people, too, when you look at the statistics, and we're more mobile as well as a result of the reopenings. Right. So there are, for example, when you look in Florida, um, when you go back in March, the median age of people getting sick was 65. More recently, it's more like 35. Now, most of those 35 year olds are going to be fine. They're going to either have no symptoms or they're going to be recovering at home. You know, they're sick, but not sick enough to go to the hospital. But two things are at play here, Julia. First of all, some of them will be in the hospital. I was speaking to a 29 year old yesterday who was in the hospital. I could hear as I was speaking to him that he is short of breath. He has underlying medical conditions. He's got um, respiratory issues. He's got high blood pressure. And so that, of course, contributed to why he's in the hospital. So some young people will end up getting very sick. And unfortunately, some will even end up dying. But the ones that recover at home, first of all, I think we've sort of made the mistake of saying, oh, they're not that sick. They're recovering at home. That's not true. I was speaking to one woman who was recovering at home. She's 23. She said that she felt so awful that she was reduced to tears on some days. She said the body aches were like nothing she'd ever experienced. Was she so sick she needed to be in the hospital? No, but she was miserable. She has an infant, I mean, she is a two-year-old daughter. She can't see that daughter. Somebody else has to take care of that child. This 23-year-old has a full-time job. She can't work at that job. So there are ramifications, even if you're not sick enough to be in the hospital. And so even if you're only mildly ill, you can still spread it. So first of all, people, young people are ending up in the hospital. Second of all, even when they're recovering at home, it can be miserable and it costs money and they're losing money. And third of all, any of these people, even if you're asymptomatic, can spread it. So for those three reasons, we don't want young people getting sick. And this is part of the challenge, I think, as well, with the strain of thought that says that, look, just get younger people in particular out there back to work. They'll build up some degree of herd immunity, which was perhaps needed and going to be part of the solution here versus those that say, actually, that's not part of the solution. If you overwhelm your medical system, you have that happen before you can build up any form of immunity or significant form of immunity among the population. And we're facing that challenge again with increasingly overwhelmed medical systems in certain states. That's right. So medical systems become overwhelmed. They can't treat people. Uh, They can't treat people as effectively as they want. And people end up suffering and even end up dying because they couldn't get the treatment that they needed. So that's, you know, obviously a a big part of this. The other part of this is that it's not clear that we're going to get herd immunity. Uh, It is not clear how long these antibodies last. You know, to give you another example, when you get measles, you have immunity to measles for the rest of your life. That is quite clear that that really works well. However, that is not the case with coronavirus. There are some serious doubts about how long you have immunity for. So let's say you get a bunch of young people sick. They develop antibodies. Maybe they've got immunity. Maybe they don't. Or maybe they only have it for a period of months. That's not going to help us in the long run. So this plan of just get everybody sick and we'll have herd immunity, that does not seem to be the way that it's working out. Yeah, we've gone full circle. End of this discussion, wear a mask. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much it, for that. Why, why not? I can't think yeah. of a reason not to do it other than you, that you think it's making a political statement, which is ridiculous. We're talking yeah. about health. We're not talking about politics. Yeah, get over the politics, wear a mask.
Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Another 1.5 million Americans filing new claims for unemployment benefits last week. Continuing claims, those that are already receiving benefits, which are reported with a one-week lag, stand at 19.5 million in the week ending June 13th. That's down from 20.5 million the previous week. Christine Romans joins us now. It is down, Christine, but it's just not coming down quickly. And we continue to add more people week on week. Uh, fresh claims for unemployment benefits. I mean, these numbers are staggering. They really are. You know, new claims are falling, but barely falling. And a lot of economists had figured that they'd be falling a little bit faster. That continuing claims number, really important. Sure, it was down, you know, 767,000. That's a good sign. But it's still 19 and a half million people continuing to get uh, jobless benefits. And that's not even counting the pandemic uh, unemployment insurance. Those numbers have been really kind of all over the place because some of the states haven't been able to process that really uh, quite yet. So you still have people who are waiting for their first unemployment check, even as, you know, the view from Washington is that things are okay and we're getting to the other side of this crisis, health crisis, which clearly is not the case. So over the past 14 weeks, 47.2 million people have filed uh, for unemployment benefits, either laid off or furloughed. That number is just so big. It represents 29% of the pre-pandemic labor market. I mean, even it's still shocking, you know, three and a half, four months later to be saying numbers like this still very, very big. Yeah, they are. And I think, and I keep illustrating on the show, the differences in handling uh, of the virus outbreak and the importance of testing and tracing. But for me, Disney is at the core of that. Disney's yeah. shown that it can reopen theme parks. It did it in Shanghai. It managed it in Hong Kong. What we saw overnight was a strategic decision not to reopen Disneyland in California. Yeah, well, California has all of these cases, near peak cases uh, in California. And you have some of its uh, employees at Disney World in Florida who are concerned, who have, you know, signed on to, uh, to a, you know, a, a, a lobby, a petition to keep that one closed because they're worried about their own health. Some 7,000 people worried about their own health. Uh, look, reopening will be in fits and starts. And that petition, it was so interesting, said that, you know, going out and having fun with your family and and relaxing at a theme park is not necessarily an essential business in a time of COVID peaking in some of these states like Florida and California. So the company is going to be very careful, I think, here on, they haven't even put a date yet for when they think they're going to have a, even a soft kind of date on the calendar for when they're going to think about reopening in California. You know, contact tracing, really important. Imagine how many people will be in those parks when they do reopen. And if you have an outbreak at a park, just how far that could be spread. So I think we'll watch here to see how leisure and hospitality will be able to get back up uh, for business. Reopening in the middle of a pandemic is hard. Reopening when there are peak infection rates in some of these states seems almost impossible to me. Yes. And all lies on a decision now for Florida, of course, Disney. Uh Disney yeah. World in Florida. Mm. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Nice to see you. All right, Dax Index Star worth $14 billion just a week ago, now effectively worthless. I'm talking about Wirecard. The payments firm shares were suspended just before the German digital firm announced its filing for insolvency. For Plugin is in Berlin. For us, February, we were talking about this earlier on this week $2 billion fraud. No surprise, I think, that now the companies had to turn around and say, look, we're insolvent here. Mm. What a fall from grace. Yeah, I, 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think no one really is surprised by the fact that they filed for insolvency. In fact, there are some uh, who over the past couple of days since we've been talking about this is calling what's happening to Wirecard the German Enron because it just seemed to come out of nowhere that all of a sudden it turns out that this company is not only in giant financial trouble, but that about a quarter of its assets don't really seem to exist. And they filed for insolvency now uh, because they said, of course, in general, they are over indebted, but there were two major loans that they were supposed to pay back. I think one uh, at the end of June and one on the 1st of July that they simply would not have been able to. We're talking about something in the range of 800 million euros that they would have had to pay back, which obviously they're not going to be able to do. So that is a saga that has been going uh, ongoing. And as you've noted, their uh, trading of their shares was suspended there uh, on the DAX. And that was after their share prices fell by well over 90% over the past week since all of this has been going on. So clearly, that company has already lost a lot of its value on top of the fact that it's unclear where large parts of their assets are. Uh, meanwhile, the investigations against former CEO Markus Braun continue here in Germany. Obviously, the uh, German investigators looking at him, but then also saying that uh, there may have been others that he was conspiring with, inflating earnings reports and several things as well. I think the line that we're getting from investigators is that they are actually investigating into several different uh, directions at this point of possible financial crimes that obviously hurt this company a great deal. Of course, we know that the COO of the company was also sacked uh, over the weekend. So clearly there's a lot going on uh, as far as Wirecard is concerned. But I think one of the things, Julia, that you and I have been talking about, which is also really important to note, is that this is a gigantic company. This is one of the 30 biggest companies here in Germany. The reason why it is uh, on the DAX and German politics is taking this extremely serious. We've heard from the German finance minister who called this very troubling, said this needs to be sorted out quickly. Uh, the German economics minister also extremely angry uh, about all this, saying this needs to get sorted out very quickly, uh, fearing that the image of Germany as a financial marketplace could be in serious trouble. And of course, the German financial regulator itself has come out uh, and said that this is one of the biggest catastrophes they could think of, and also being self-critical as well, saying that they clearly failed uh, with the oversight of this company also, Julia. Absolutely. So many questions here. I mean, pension funds are invested in the DAX index. I don't think they've ever had a, a business mm. failure like this. Auditors, regulators, you name it, loads of questions. And one person didn't do this alone. Let's be clear. Fred, yeah. fantastic. Thank you so much for that. The SoftBank CEO says things are looking up for the company after its record loss last month. The comments come on the same day a lucrative management partnership with Alibaba came to an end. Kaori Njoji has the details from Tokyo. SoftBank founder and CEO Masayoshi Son says he's resigning from the board of Alibaba, marking a milestone in a relationship that cemented Son as a startup visionary. The announcement comes the same day that Jack Ma, Alibaba's founder, is leaving the board from SoftBank. The relationship between the two men has been one for the books. Son turned a $20 million investment in Alibaba 20 years ago into $60 billion when the Chinese e-commerce giant went public six years ago. Calling it an amicable split, Son said that he considers Jack Ma to be a friend and a comrade, and that before the pandemic, the two used to meet for dinner every month to talk about business and life. Son has been on the defensive after his company posted its worst ever annual loss in May, and he's been trying to sell assets to free up some cash, including a recent sale in T-Mobile. He says 80% of that process is now complete. Son also told a shareholder meeting today that he's taking a pay cut this year to take responsibility for the company's performance. That's all from Tokyo. I'm Cody and Joji.
All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Plenty more to come on the show. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move with a quick look at U.S. stocks pre-market. We're set to fall, in fact, for a second day after another dismal read on the U.S. jobs market. Jobless claims rising by a further one and a half million people last week. The economists had hoped we'd be below one million workers filing for claims by now, but clearly not the case. In the meantime, the number of Americans still collecting benefits remains close to that 20 million workers mark. Today's report suggesting that many workers who had been furloughed in the spring are now losing their jobs outright. Plenty of uncertainties and challenges remain, including the IMF, who's forecasted a drop in global trade of almost 12% in 2020 and warned that trade tensions could undermine a recovery from the COVID-19 crisis. Export-driven economies like Singapore's will be particularly vulnerable. The country has downgraded its 2020 growth forecast three times since the pandemic began. It now says GDP could contract by up to 7% this year. Joining us now is Chan Chun Singh. He's Singapore's Minister for Trade and Industry. Minister, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to begin by talking about your growth expectations and those three revisions. Is this the worst case scenario that we're looking at now, or do you still see risks potentially to growth to the downside? Well, thank you, Julia. I think at this point in time, we are looking at various downside risks. There are still quite a number of issues that we have to manage in Singapore. For example, we are making good progress, taking care of the health of our people, but we will have to closely watch how our economy recover in tandem with the rest of the global economic recovery. But I think what everyone is concerned with is the possibility, the high possibility of subsequent and recurring waves of infection impacting the economy. And if I may add, at this point in time, we are dealing with a few crises at the same time. There's a severe demand and supply shock to the global economy. There's also the breaking down of the global connectivities in terms of air and sea freight. The, many of the small businesses are facing both a ca- cash and credit crunch, and all this will have a compounding effects on each other. I mean, so many countries around the world are, are facing this too, but a particular challenge when it's a, a smaller open economy that is so externally focused in, in terms of trade. There's also a a reassessment in light of trade tensions and COVID on supply chains, particularly on the resilience of those supply chains. What changes is Singapore making and and where specifically do you look and say this is an area of particular vulnerability? For Singapore, we have always diversified our economy and our supply chains. Our fundamental belief is that we should never be overly reliant on any particular market or any particular source of supply. And for us at this moment in time, there's also an opportunity for Singapore because many global companies are looking for opportunities to redistribute their production bases across the world in order to look for a more resilient supply system uh, beyond the usual cost efficiencies that they were previously looking at. So when the US companies or even the Chinese companies relocate their operations across different parts of the world, 
particularly to Southeast Asia, Singapore will be able to play a meaningful part as a business hub, a financial hub and a data hub to support all these operations by the global multinationals. That's such an interesting point. I was going to ask you about the elephant in the room there, the the US-China trade tensions. So you're actually saying that it perhaps provides more of a strategic opportunity than it does a weight on your economy, because we already were seeing your economy slowing even before COVID-19 hit. It's an opportunity more than a risk for Singapore in your mind. For us, uh, every moment there are both opportunities and challenges at the same time. But Mm. if we may take a step back and look at the US and the Chinese uh, trade issues, I would say this, the competition between the US and China is not a zero-sum game. There are areas which the US and China will need to cooperate. This includes upholding the global trading system, the situation in North Korea and so forth. But there are obviously also other areas which the US and China will compete in the areas of market access, in the areas of technologies and so forth. So I think there are also opportunities for US and China to work together to uphold the global trading system. At this point in time, I think the relationship between the US and China is not defined just by the current account deficit or surplus. Ultimately, it is a contest between two models of governance and economic system. And it will ultimately hinge on which of these two systems will be more appealing to the global population, which one of these systems can provide better opportunities to uplift the lives of its people. And the long-term competition will be defined by which is the more innovative economy, which are the more creative people, which of the countries can provide the better connectivity and leadership with the rest of the world. So I think there's tremendous opportunities for both US and China to play a leadership role in the global economy. And as great powers, both will have the opportunity to either demonstrate the power of their example or the example of their power. It's fascinating what you say. Caught in the crossfire, I think, of those two political ideals is Hong Kong and the risk at this moment that Hong Kong loses its special trading status with the United States as a result of the challenges over China's national security law. What will that mean? If that happens and that special trading status is lost, what will that mean for Singapore? From Singapore's perspective, we would always like to see Hong Kong continue to thrive as both a global and regional financial centre. It is part of the entire financial ecosystem in uh, East Asia, and we wish Hong Kong every success in their onward journey. But can Singapore benefit and perhaps rival Hong Kong if necessary? What is the message from Singapore at this moment? Are perhaps international businesses that are looking for alternatives welcome in Singapore? I think there are obviously areas which Singapore compete with Hong Kong, but there are also areas which Singapore and Hong Kong complement each other. For us, it is important to see Hong Kong to continue to grow and thrive as part of the East Asian financial and ecosystem. So I think there are many areas that Hong Kong can continue to work with Singapore, including with other financial centres in this part of the region, like Tokyo or Shanghai. 
diplomatically put, uh, Minister Chang. I want to talk to you about um, politics in your own country now. Uh, a risky decision, let's call it that, to hold elections during a, a pandemic and with the challenges on the economy. Explain the timing of this decision. Well, Julia, you see, we are not going back to a pre-COVID world and without a vaccine, it is also quite unlikely for us to get into a post-COVID world. So all of us will have to learn to live in a COVID world to take care of our fellow citizens, their health, their well-being and their livelihoods. And at the same time, we must also learn to live in a COVID world while upholding our democratic system and ideals. Yes, you're right. We all have to uh, recognise that this is the new reality and the new normal. Minister, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much. And we look forward to chatting to you again soon. Chan Chung Singh, Singapore's Minister for Trade and Industry there. Thank you, Thank you, Julia. All right, the opening bell follows this. Plus, we'll be lifting the hood on Robin Hood, the founder of a new site. Robin Track will join us. He'll tell us what stocks millennials are stocking up on next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday, and we are softer once again. Health concerns, as we've been discussing front and center amid rising cases in key U.S. states like Florida, Texas, and California, as well as new signs that businesses are slowing reopening plans and cutting back operations. To name just one, Macy's reporting today that it's set to lay off nearly 4,000 workers, some 3% of the workforce. Helping lead the market lower during yesterday's sharp sell-off too were sectors like airlines and cruise lines that have been popular with younger retail investors who trade on popular apps like Robinhood. These investors have been credited with accurately predicting the market bottom back in March. Their timing, in fact, being called impeccable by some. The big question is what these, mudding, these budding market mavens are buying next and whether they will cash out in times of trouble. Well, helping us monitor the trading habits of Robinhood's 13 million users is a new site called RobinTrack, which gathers data on the most widely held stocks on the Robinhood app and the stocks that are gaining in popularity. Joining us now is the 23-year-old founder of RobinTrack, Casey Primozic. He joins us now. Casey, fantastic to have you with us. Just to be clear, you're not affiliated with um, Robinhood in any way, though you are a trader yourself on Robinhood. Talk to me about the decision to pull this data and display it for, for others. So I've built a couple of different websites in the past to track data from video games and other things. And it, uh, seeing it in the app, I saw the opportunity. Uh, it was back in college. As, I, as you said, I'm a Robinhood trader myself, so I saw the opportunity. And um, yeah, Robinhood was the result of what I, what I did. And suddenly, since COVID-19, interest exploded. Lots more people joining the Robinhood site to trade stocks, to buy at the bottom, as we saw. And you've had lots of pretty big names coming to you and asking you questions about your tool. Yeah, for sure. There's been a ton of interest, both from you know individual traders themselves looking to see what fellow traders are doing, as well as some of the bigger institutions, um, hedge funds and other financial companies looking to try to measure the market and get an edge on their competitors. And you make all this available for free, you don't charge, but your website uses advertising to make money. Exactly, yeah. So Robinhood provides the popularity data for free from their website. And um, to match that, I provide the data freely on RabbitTrack as well. 
it's kind of the same ethos as Robin Hood itself. That was really about democratizing access, allowing retail investors, people of all ages, access to shares. You kind of share the same ethos, I guess, with your with your tool here too. Very much so. I'm a big fan of Robinhood as a company, and um, I followed some similar sort of progressive financial companies like IEX, um, trying to make the market a more level playing field and get rid of these big barriers that have traditionally been in the way of people being successful. Okay, talk to me about what some of these uh, traders are actually buying then. I know you've, uh, we've got a few charts here. Apple is the one we're going to begin on. Perhaps no surprise, lots of buying here. Yeah, so Apple's a household name. It's one of the, the biggest, most you know, pervasive companies that the U.S. consumer will come in contact with. Um, as you, un, you know, unsurprisingly, there's been a ton of people who have bought into it, um, especially since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that there's been a huge increase in the number of accounts on Robinhood itself. So that kind of biases the data upwards a little bit. But at the same time, since Apple's at all-time highs currently, um, most of the people on Robinhood have been pretty successful if they've held it for any amount of time. I want to show Slack as well, because this is interesting, because you see some of the price gyrations in Slack and an adjustment of, of the holdings here. You can see that there with the, uh, with the green line, people pairing their holdings of, of Slack stock. Yeah, so Slack, a lot of people jumped in right when it IPO'd. And then there was also a big renewance in popularity due to the whole COVID pandemic. Um, since the whole work from home movement was such a massive force in the market, um, a lot of retail investors took note and took the opportunity to jump into Slack. Yeah, you know, one of the big fears here, I think, for people is that we're talking about investors that perhaps have less experience than some of the more professional traders. If we do see a more protracted downturn, do a lot of these people, maybe they're in profit right now, but do they take profit? Do they hang on in there? Do they lose money? What's your thoughts on that as someone who trades on this app yourself? So if you're investing for the long term, generally it's, it can be a good idea to, to be more conservative in the amount that you trade. Like if, you, if you're one of the people who bought in during the COVID pandemic with all the lower prices, it could be a good idea to hold for the long term. But if you see yourself more as a day trader or you know, regular trader, um, it's important to actually take profits when the prices go up and your trades become profitable. So depending on your uh, mindset and attitude, uh, it can depend, but yeah. And Casey, are you encouraged to put things like take profit levels in and stop losses in in case you are losing money so that you can manage exactly how much money you're, you're losing potentially? Yeah, if you see yourself as like a daily trader, uh, using tools like that are very useful. Uh, if you're more of a long-term investor and you see yourself holding these companies for years or decades, uh, those aren't as important because short-term price fluctuations will come and go. But if you're buying the company for the long term, you mostly want to ignore those and keep holding. Wow, Casey, you're sounding like a very rational trader, quite frankly, and you're only 23 and you're doing this. It's um, terrifying, quite frankly, very impressive. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much. And uh, all sorts of people using this tool now, I know. Thank you. The founder of Robin Track there. All right. As investors look for value among uh, air travel shares, airlines themselves are fighting for survival, most shedding jobs and some crying out for help. Lufthansa looks set to agree a $10 billion bailout from the German government. Meanwhile, Australia's Qantas is laying off 20% of its workforce and largely abandoning international routes until mid-2021. 
the collapse of billions of dollars in revenue leaves us with little choice if we are to save as many jobs as possible longer term. Many of the 6,000 job losses we've announced today are people who have spent decades here. They're people we know personally. They are people that we know for a long time. Richard Quest joins us now. Fight for survival for many of these names, Richard, and actually no end in sight, a return to normality, at least as far as that's concerned. Let's talk Lufthansa first. What will this mean in practice, this bailout? Well, Lufthansa is getting a $9 billion bailout from the government, uh, from the German government. And it was a bit if and uh, touch and go as to whether they were actually going to get it. But they have now got the support of the major shareholders and it will look just look like it's going to pass. What's interesting about it is the fact that other airlines, particularly in the United States, have got their financing through the private sector. Capital markets, equity raising, bonds, all of those sort of things, with help from the government. In the case of Lufthansa, most of the money, most of the rescue is coming from the government. Listen to Carson Spohr, the CEO at today's meeting. We know that the consequences of this crisis will affect the company for years to come. According to everything we can predict and calculate today, we need 9 billion euros of capital to successfully overcome this crisis. 9 billion dollars uh, is an extraordinary large amount of money. It's sort of on par with what Air France KLM got. But you're now getting two groups of airlines. And bearing in mind, Qantas also today announced it was taking out of the capital markets a 1.9 billion Australian dollar, 1.3 US um, capital raising through equity. So put it together. And what the airlines are now doing is preparing for a recovery, however that might be. And as Alan Joyce at Qantas said, get ready for opportunities when they occur in the recovery, because opportunities there will be. It's interesting, isn't it? You've just got to be in a financial um in a state that you actually you can benefit from that so it's just yeah. about hanging on in in the in the interim struggling to get my words out that's because actually yeah. there's another yeah. story that i want to get your view on and that's what came from the pakistani aviation authority in the last 24 hours about a third of pilots not actually being qualified to be flying planes richard what do you make of this story and how prevalent is this elsewhere it's not. It is not. Phew. Let me say that clearly. It is not prevalent elsewhere. This is the most extraordinary story in aviation. Dubious licenses, fake licenses is how the uh, investigators put it in the Pakistan air crash investigation. And PIA is looking to see that perhaps up to a third of its pilots did not have the correct licensing. Now, to be clear, the pilots that were flying the crashed plane did have licensing, although there was a raft of other incompetent issues in the way they were flying the plane. But the fact that a country is admitting that there are dubious pilots' licenses in the commercial airline sector 
beggars belief and must raise some very serious questions about safety of airlines in Pakistan. Yes, I mean, the suggestion was they were getting other people to do the, uh, the final exams. I mean, fine, you know, you need to get air miles in order to gain experience. Yeah. But the idea that they never took the exam is, um, quite frankly, terrifying. Right. So I'm glad you're equally outraged, Richard. Oh, yeah. Well, we have had cases, isolated cases, where pilots have been flying for decades on forged, outdated, whatever, whatever. But they've always turned out to be very good pilots who just didn't have the right paperwork. This is not in that case. This is a case of wholesale uh, fraud, whatever you want to call it. Uh, people flying that shouldn't have been flying. It's a scandal. Yeah, it really is. And um, yeah, taking my words away, which actually is quite rare. Richard? Always great to have you with us. Richard Crest, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. I'll get my teeth back in. Antibody tests were seen as the touchstone in efforts to get the world back to work. But amid doctors' doubts about their reliability, how can trust be restored? What's the testing tracing action plan? The president of Mayor Labs is next. Welcome back to First Move. Earlier on the show, we were talking about challenges associated with antibody testing for COVID-19, especially the strength and length of immunity. The Food and Drug Administration says it's authorised 21 antibody tests now. Among them is the Mayo Clinic's test. US Vice President Mike Pence visited the clinic in April and described Mayo as a big part of America's solution on testing. He was speaking there with Dr. William Maurice, president of the Mayo Medical Laboratories, and I'm pleased to say he now joins us. So fantastic to have you on the show once again. I know you are consulting businesses, talking to them about the best way to get America back to work and to do it safely. What's your current thinking on testing? Well, uh, Julia, it's a, it's a real pleasure to join you again as well. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, where testing is today is uh, still pretty close to where it was when we last talked in early April. We have two, really two types of tests. One that answers the question, do I have the virus right now? Um, and the other that answers the question, have I been exposed to the virus and generated an immune response? Uh, the challenge is that neither of these tests, there's no single test that can say absolutely you don't have the virus and no single test yet that can say, not only have you been exposed, but you're now protected from the virus. So the real question now is how do we use these tests and the information they can and can't provide to help people go back to, to life safely, whether that's uh, clearly going back to work, getting economies restarted, really just restarting social life. And so that's our focus now at Mayo Clinic is to really understand how to use the tests to their best effect to guide industries as they look to get back to work. And how should we? You've posed the perfect question. Now you can answer it too, please. So I guess really what it boils down to is understanding what the tests can and can't do, and at the same time using analytics uh, and tools that can help us understand where the virus is in our society, in, in the populations and in the areas where the, where the workforce is living and traveling to, uh, we can now use data and data modeling, uh, collaborating with my, uh, our chief value officer, Dr. Henry Teng here at Mayo Clinic. We have developed tools 
which we've used for our own hospitals to understand uh, what is the impact of coronavirus in our communities and what will that mean for Mayo Clinic healthcare facilities. And now we're using that same, and how do we use testing to increase our understanding of that, uh, really providing the data and the information that give us those insights. And now we're using those same tools and, and working with industries outside of healthcare, outside of Mayo Clinic to try and help them answer those same questions. Who in our workforce has the virus? Who in our workforce is at risk of getting the virus? And what can we do to protect them? Yeah, regular testing and, of course, to the point, uh, those people that actually have the virus but have no symptoms because this is a critical part of how it's spreading too. Some of the other work I know that you've been doing at the clinic as well was on plasma. Actually, treatments for people that have COVID-19 using the plasma from patients who've recovered. Can you give us any insights on what you're finding there and some of the results that you're having with those studies? So... We have been a leader for actually a national program in convalescent anisera, which is really, uh, again, is when you take uh, plasma, which is the clear part of the blood from an individual who has had SARS-CoV-2 virus, has had COVID-19 and has recovered, you take that and the antibodies in that plasma and you give it to someone that's sick with the virus as a treatment. Uh, it's convalescent anisera. And so we have now actually administered as part of the program across the U.S., over 20,000 patients have been treated uh, with, this, uh, with this convalescent anisera, and we're now collecting the data uh, to really understand, is it effective? Uh, what can we do to predict that it's going to be effective? And we have a new test that will help with that. And then ultimately, is it really helping people that get it? The early results are very, very promising. So uh, hopefully here in the next uh, coming weeks, next few weeks even, we'll be able to actually start to, to get enough information to publish the, the data. And I would say uh, that's one reason why we need to do as much testing as possible, because the testing that we do really gives us the information to draw the conclusions that people need us to draw from these tests, namely, who has a virus, who's going to get sick with the virus, and how effective are the treatments like convalescent anisera that we're giving to these patients. Yeah, we just need more data, to your point again. No, it keeps coming back to, uh, to the same point, I think. One of the things I think that's puzzled a lot of people throughout this virus is why some people get incredibly sick, why some people barely have any symptoms at all. Talk to me about T cells, because I've been reading a lot about this over the past few weeks, and I think we need your wisdom on this. What do we need to know and understand? Well, first of all, I would just say one of the things that's, that people should take away from this is that our ability to understand SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 uh, what has taken us essentially years or even decades to learn with diseases like HIV and hepatitis C, we're now learning over a course of months with COVID-19. So we know a lot more now than we did even in April. Uh, the immune system is actually a system, and so it has different components. It has the B cells, which make the antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, which have gotten a lot of attention. But those B cells need other cells to help them in that task. And one of those cells, very important, are called T cells that you referenced. Uh, the T cells are, are now required, and they've proven this, to actually help the B cells generate the antibody response. Very interestingly, though, we have found that in some individuals, up to 40 to 60 percent, if you look at their T cells, even though they've never been exposed to the virus, they have some T cells that can react to the virus. Uh, and they, these studies were done by actually taking blood from prior to 2019, so there's no way the individuals have been exposed. They still had some of these T cells in their immune system that could respond to the virus. 
what we postulate is that this might be why some people get sick, more sick than others, is that they might have some cross-reactivity in these T cells uh, that have responded to the more common cold viruses. Uh, we still haven't proven that yet, and I think it's gonna be really important both to understand the pathogenesis of the virus and why people get sick, and more importantly, I think, which people need to be treated, um, and it'll be very important in vaccine development as well. Yeah, it, again, if we can find out who and how many people have these T-cells that might make them a little bit more resilient to fighting this virus, it changes the game again in terms of the back-to-work plan. Wow, you guys are doing some work. It's, um, it's fascinating. Come back and talk to us soon, please, because I know you guys have got a lot going on and uh, approaching the point where you can talk to us uh, in more detail. Great to have you with us. Dr. Uh, William Maurice. Uh, it's great to join you. Happy to be on any time. <laughs> you bet. See you soon. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break here on First Move, get an eyeful of this. Yes, nice. One of the world's most famous tourist attractions gets back on its feet, but how do you socially distance at the Eiffel Tower? We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move, and it's Paris in summertime. You are looking at the first visitors to return to the Eiffel Tower which is now back open after its longest closure, in fact, since World War II. It's virtually three months. One thing, though, that hasn't changed, long lines and lots of walking. And I have to say, no lift to get to the top, I believe, at least for now. So you've got to be prepared to do some step walking if you want to go up there. But what a positive sign coming back to life. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.